people that are one trying to figure out what to deal, the inputs of those numbers are very important. Those assumptions are very important. How did you first find what you can charge for rent? Just so folks that yeah. are a little bit more new to the process, how did they figure out how much rent they could charge and how much can or will the government actually pay for that unit? Can we start yeah. there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you have uh, fair market rent rates that are published on HUD, HUD site. So HUDhousing.gov. And you go to that and you want to find out your the FMRs they refer to it as. That's fair market rent rates. Um, they have payment standards. Now, payment standards usually reflect a higher number because that's also saying, hey, you're going to cover utilities. And then you have the FMRs that typically they're deducting the utilities out. And, and there's a utility sheet as well. Um, and actually on the on the analyzer, it you can actually see that on uh, within my platform, uh, all uh, all 50 states um, I have in there where you can click on it and then click on the county and it'll tell you what the FMRs are for every single county in the U.S. So that way it's easy. But the government, unfortunately, is clunky and, and, and kind of scary to go to the site and figure it out. But yeah, you can go to HUDhousing.gov and you could search for your uh, housing choice voucher FMRs and find those numbers out. So going into back to my deal, right? So that $1,100, I already knew it was going to be $1,100 because I looked up the FMR for that particular location. And that helped me better understand what's the 40th percentile that you want to target because that's what the government targets for those FMRs. It's the mm. 40th percentile of housing in any given area. They're saying, hey, we'll give you a fair market rent rate of the 40th percentile of a house and below. So that means, okay, so most people know that rent to value ratio, the 1% rule, that's going to dictate your target and that's what we talk about in the training as well. How do you figure out what houses the target? And that's part of the part of the equation as well is is figuring out those FMRs for sure, and then finding that 40th percentile of housing and below. Got it. So you have yeah. FMR, which is fair market rents, and just for folks to know, like you can look it up the FMR by zip code, by bedroom count on HUD's website that you guys can go and research out on your own. Now, what's interesting is what a lot of people don't know about is the payment standards that Mike brought up. Payment standards can be a value that's higher than a fair market rents because they include utilities. Mike. Okay, welcome to the episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, we are returning a superstar from our last couple of episodes. We got Mike Caggiano from Section8Secrets.com. Today, we're actually going to go way deeper into this process because we heard amazing feedback from our listeners. So, Without further ado, Mike, welcome back to the show, man. For the people that didn't listen to the episode last time, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about yourself to get things started? Awesome, Kent. Yep. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad to hear positive things. Um, and again, great cause too. Affordable housing needs to be talked about much more. Um, but yeah, so I've been an investor in real estate. Um, first, accidentally became a, a landlord when I needed to move out and uh, relocate uh, for better better things uh, work-wise uh, about 17 years ago. And uh, originally I'm from Maine and I now reside in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm investing kind of across different, different areas, uh, fairly market agnostic with the model that I've created. Um, but I have units in Maine, Virginia, um, and here in North Carolina, and always open to better understanding other areas as well that might be lucrative as well. And I focus on affordable housing, in particular, housing choice voucher uh, tenants only now. Uh, I've gone through uh, not just Section 8, but I've gone and uh, had executive rentals, uh, private market ones, that non-executive. And I found it to be the, the best choice, the path of least resistance uh, being the housing choice voucher program. Dude, amazing. And I remember last time you have a good amount of rentals in your portfolio right now and you're cash flowing pretty heavily and you are just a wizard of numbers from what I remember. Just for people to catch back up from the last episode, can you just remind them of like, what does your portfolio look like and what does your gross rents and cash flow look like currently from your portfolio of Section 8 rentals? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And since we last spoke, I'm happy to say for myself, I've, I've had successfully increased three of my units um, now and I have two more left. So I have eight units. Um, and right now it's cash flowing just over uh, 7,300. So cash flow positive at 7,300. Wow. And by the time I increase the other remaining units, it'll be a little over 8,000 positive cash flow um, for, for all these units. Yep. And that's a good chunk of change, baby. Uh, no, I love it. And I remember 
your topic was really learning and figuring out how do you actually invest in HOAs, condos, townhomes, et cetera. Maybe you just start by telling the guests like, hey, how does your process work? Just give us a little bit of overview there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, guys. So what we what I ended up uh, doing was through basically friends and family asking me about what I've been doing, how am I doing it? What you know, how do you have time to do that? So I am a, a father of three. I'm married. Um, I do have a corporate job as well. Been been in my current position for about eleven years. So quite a few responsibilities. So it's like, how do I how do I do this? But what you don't need to do is quit your job, and and you don't have to go all in. And what what it is basically what I've ended up refining through the years. So. 17 years of this, I've found, you know, of course, I'm going to make some errors. I'm going to find better ways and better uh, methods and processes. So what I ended up creating, instead of just saying this at my poker game or saying it at a family event, what I'm doing, I ended up starting with a book and then the book turned into um, a platform. So what it ends up becoming now is Section 8 Secrets. And what Section 8 Secrets essentially is, is a business model. It's a full of uh, standard operating procedures of what you need to do in real estate investing in order to succeed in the model that I've adopted. So there's many different ways to make money in real estate. And, you know, this is just one of those methods that I, uh, that I created on an interact interactive platform um, with a community of investors at all levels. So we have, I have some friends that don't even have a unit yet and they're in the program now. And I have some that have five, six and uh, seven units. And I have a couple that are actually have many more units than even myself. Um, but it never is too late to learn a method and try a method and maybe just diversify a portfolio that maybe you have 50 units already, but you want to get into government section eight housing choice voucher, uh, as a, as another stream. So by the end of the program, a, a user would have, would have created first a detailed personal budget. Cause I really start at the basics even, um, and then you'd have a, a full methodology to follow on your personal budget itself. Then also I have a forecaster and a, and a deal analyzer that enables the, the users to better understand what properties, why do you want to target those properties, and what are the numbers that it's going to elicit if you purchase the property. So that's the deal analyzer and, um, and the forecaster. And it essentially helps you underwrite the deal um, pretty much just laying in bed or something. like it, it, Within 30 seconds, basically, you could plug in certain numbers and it's going to spit it out and it's going to tell you what's your cash on cash, what's your cap rate whatever numbers that you want to kind of pinpoint and that you're targeting, I kind of put them all in there. Um, but, it, but it's an easy way to better understand. And then what locations do you want to buy in and why? And so we, we go over that in the training um, and an applicant process uh, screening process that really is hands off. It's a Google doc and it's free and the applicants apply and it spits a number out to me via email. And I only, you know, I'll look at it and say 90% and above. So I'm really only talking to, high likelihood of them staying long-term tenants that have high quality and how I've determined what variables is just through the course of time and being in the program and knowing what to value more than, you know, certain other variables that perhaps aren't as valuable to even bother asking. Um, you know, case in point might be somebody that in, in third party private market, your job is critical because you want to validate the income in my program. Your job is important just to better understand how long are they going to be out of the unit? Because the longer they're in the unit, that the more wear and tear. And that's just a little tidbit, you know, certain topics like that, that I hit on little, little weird things that are a little bit different than conventional investing with third party in, in private market ones. And then how to pass the home quality standards inspections that you have. So I go through that. I go through tips and things like that. And then how to leverage HOAs. Like on the previous podcast, we pretty much just focus on that one variable of maybe 15 variables that are in the program was HOAs and why they're actually your friend and how you can leverage them significantly to be able to scale and become market agnostic and not even have a property management company taking 18, 20% of your profits. Um, so we, we hit on that as well and, and better understanding. And then lastly, just how to scale this to a level that's sustainable to you to have freedom, to have freedom to you know still have 10, 15 units and still have free time, plenty of free time to have a full-time job, have a family and go on vacations and then reap the benefit of, of, of the cash flow that you've created on all these properties. Yeah. And let me jump in here. I think I want to, the guests and the listeners to understand where the value is, right? You, you just spit out a few things, including your screen, your tenant screening process, and then also some tidbits about how to pass the inspection. 
what are you able to give examples of some of the things that you failed on and now you're including those tidbits into kind of your community that you are creating mike any sort of tidbits any sort of inspection failures that you kind of went through that you can share with the audience today yeah sure um some of the so what i have on on the even on the forecaster so it's one of these things out of sight out of mind so i want to keep it in sight and in your crosshairs are the the most critical items that a home and home quality inspector going into your unit is going going to be looking at and those are easy things for you to get prepared and have it have it fixed and ready but ones that are also easily o oversight if you didn't have them you know in, in your crosshair so to speak but yeah, so just a couple items are, um, I failed for screens, a screen being torn. Uh, I had a tenant live there for about eight years. She had a cat and that was fine. That was approved and she paid a pet fee. But what I didn't realize is that the, the cat had scratched the bottom right corner of a screen and it failed for that, <laughs> right? Wow. So it's like, yeah, it, it actually failed for that purpose. So, you know, I, I have that on there as a checklist. Check all, all the screens if you have a screen. Um, I talk about, you know, even ceiling fans. You don't need to have a ceiling fan. A ceiling fan is not going to get you any more money. So even if you have a perfectly working ceiling fan, and one of the most cumbersome things about a ceiling fan actually becomes the light bulbs in the ceiling fan. Oftentimes they have these four light bulbs and they like they spit out each direction. Well, if you if one of those lights doesn't work, you fail. Believe it or not, it could just be the light bulb is dead. So what we talk about is getting a ceiling fan out of there. Consider the the expense, which maybe it costs you two hundred bucks. Get it get a guy in there just to demo the ceiling fan, or you can do it yourself. I mean, I did it. I did plenty of them on my own. Um, and just get it out of there and just, and just put a cap on that because it doesn't get you any more rent and it doesn't have to be there. Um, it is a nice to have, of course, but we talk about high quality. So replace things that are unnecessary. Dishwasher is another example. Garbage disposal is another example. You can get rid of those. You could put in nice shelving. You could, you know, put in a lazy Susan or something like that in place of, uh, of a space, put in, uh, you know, different items of high quality, but just not likely to break down and cause a problem on an inspection. And the tenants don't mind at all. They they understand it. They're they're nervous when they fail. So if they know working with me is going to mitigate uh, the the failure rate, they're often quite happy and they know they're in good hands. So it's like, yeah, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, it's fine. I'm not using a dishwasher or whatever it is. Things like that. Hairline fractures and flooring. I've had that where just a little crack on uh, porcelain tile is can be a failure. Now, I should say this, it, it does depend on who the inspector is and how stringent they they are. But I talk about that in the training, like just assume they're going to be extremely stringent because it is for the betterment of the tenant and the betterment of you as a landlord. It's going to reduce the likelihood of additional problems to down the road. Just get it all. Assume it's going to be scrutinized to an extreme level and just have those things taken care of. But yeah, that little hairline fracture in the in the grout in the in the tile was a failure for me. It was considered a tripping hazard. So those are just a few of the items, but you know, we hit on a lot of them in, in, in the training and like I said, the forecaster and the deal analyzer, they, I always keep them in sight so the lists are there. So when you're out at a property or you're just trying to figure out, hey, do these numbers work, keep those items that could fail in mind because you don't want to forget about them. Wow. Dane, did you run, run into those things when you were inspecting? Like, it's just crazy that people just forget about these low light bulb things, right? But that's all it takes to fail an inspection. Dane, you run into anything like that during your career? We had an electrical outlet upside down mm -hmm. once. Uh, something that I that I missed, you know, I didn't notice that it was upside down. And that caused yeah. us, I think that may have been our very first Section 8 inspection. They dinged us for a couple of uh, other things, um, but that was well, the one thing that I was like, "Really?" <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Dane. Uh, well, outlets is a key point right there, Dane. So my realtors yeah. know I get them a little outlet tester, and it, and it lights up. So yeah. that is something the inspectors travel with in their back pocket, and they're they're so proud to pull that outlet tester out. And so my realtor, I tell them, you got to plug it into every single outlet because that's basically what the inspectors do, but they don't mm -hmm. necessarily. You might plug it in one bedroom. I'll plug it in all of them to just make sure. So I, I, I even have a link in the training, like here, buy this one. It works. It's like nine bucks and you're going to yeah. be in good hands. But yeah, outlets are key too. They test every outlet usually. Yeah. Well, yeah. we had Jay Mock from Section 8 on, I think it was the last uh, episode, right? Kent? Yeah. And That's right. uh, she was there. I think she actually came out maybe the second time and worked with the inspector once 
they knew who we were and that we were doing good things, then we were able to kind of work with the inspector. So if he or she noticed things, we could have it remedied right there as, as long as it was, you know, something that was able to be remedied. Um, so that always that's, worked out well. That's us. a good point, Dane. I think initially to new investors, they likely won't get that type of leeway. But as you dive deeper and they know you're you're in it for the right reasons and you're going to take right. care of your units, I definitely have leniency. I have the inspectors like in my phone even um, yeah. when they're going out to a unit. And then you'll become, I think they can, certain areas at least, so I should speak of this, like public housing authorities have their own municipalities that they cover. So it's not all one size fits all. But what I found in Wake County and in Virginia and in Maine they'll get you on a cadence of biannual. So every other year, instead of you doing the inspection every year, and I don't know what their parameters are, but like I've slowly gotten into that. So almost all my units are now inspected every other year versus versus annually. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, you touched on uh, how does how does this uh, program that you have work? <clears throat> and knowing you, uh, I think I know the answer here, but tell us why does it work? I know you're a very attention to detail guy, a systematic guy, as Kent said, a numbers guy, but is there, what's the magic, you know, the magic solution or the magic, uh, the pill here? Yeah. Uh, tough question, really. Um, it isn't magic. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. um, but what it really boils down to is understanding the financial fundamentals of real estate investing, which is pretty, it's pretty simple. doesn't mean it's easy to do, but it is pretty simple. So um, I guess for today, what I could do is uh, I have Excel. So I heavily depend on that. I'll probably pull it up on an Excel sheet and just explain what I'm talking about here. But it, it boils down to that, right? right? Essentially, many people have probably heard of the acronym IDEAL. Um, and what I mean is income, depreciation, equity, appreciation, and, and leverage. But for the sake of today and for the sake of time, I'd probably eliminate leverage because that could get, which is great. Leverage is awesome, but that can be a little time consuming to kind of explain how to, how to actually execute on leverage. I do have in the training though, compounding real estate video and, and, a, and a chapter on that to really better understand that. But yeah, so for today, I think easy math, just like looking at the numbers themselves and why trying to figure out why the deal is going to work is first understanding the numbers themselves. And I would say this, most novice people wanting to get into real estate, really just f try to spend some time to understand those numbers. And that's that's kind of what we hit on in the beginning of the training as well. And what I would say, that's why it would end up working. And what I mean is, the, here's a good example, actually, of a property, unfortunately, I lost over the weekend. Um, and it was a $100,000 property, which believe it or not, they're still out there. Um, just got to find it in the right areas. And what I target is usually class B areas. So it's not like these really run down areas, but $100,000, 20% down. And let's just assume conventional financing, which conforming financing means you're going to put 20% down 30 year fixed. Um, and then at a 7% interest rate. So I just plug that in. I have it um, preloaded. Um, like I said, it was a deal I actually worked on over the weekend. I just found out on yesterday on Sunday that it went to somebody else on an all cash and I wasn't doing all cash. And then also for the sake of the numbers too, um, Add 5000 for closing costs, associated fees. There's a lot of different fees. There's appraisals, there's processing fees, there's settlement fees, there's attorney fees, there's inspection fees, um, all that stuff. It amounts to roughly $5,000. Actually, what I found too, despite the loan size, it, that's about 5000 all the way up to almost $500,000. So most of my units are I'm targeting between maybe 90000 to 225000 It's always around that. So again, recap, 100,000, 20% down, add 5,000 to that. So that's $25,000 of your capital investment upfront. There's an HOA fee, because I do target HOAs of 125 in my in, in this scenario that I'm that I'm referring to right now that I'm looking at. Um, and then the monthly rent is gonna be $1,100. So this these numbers and these examples, of course, the, the financial numbers work at any, at any uh, figures, just for sake of understanding and the listeners, $100,000. So that's 25,000 upfront. That also accounts. So in my number, so what, what do you want to figure out here now at this point? So your debt service costs, your HOAs, your taxes, your insurance, all that stuff. By the end of the day, where are you at on a positive cash flow? So that, that will elicit $283 a month. So that's your cash on cash. So that's 13% cash on cash. 
I take $283, multiply it by 12 and divide it by your initial capital investment of $25,000. I kind of keep going back to $25,000. So that's 13%. Pretty good deal. Not great, not amazing, but pretty good. 13% is not bad. However, there's a lot more to understanding the numbers now. And what I mean is that's the realized returns. That's the cash flow. That's the realized you know, cash on cash is realized. The unrealized gains are what get really appealing to me. And especially to somebody that now is maybe three or four years into owning a property, that's when you start to see the unrealized gains. And what I mean by that, and back to the acronym IDEAL, that's going to be the equity and the appreciation of your property. So that in, in keeping in mind, the government with Section 8, the government and your tenant are essentially giving you free margin because they're paying your mortgage. They're paying your principal and interest. And you have a little bit of a surplus there. So even if you didn't have the surplus in it with a negative, even with an even cash flow or even possibly a negative cash flow, you could still easily be winning on the investment, you know, in this scenario, which I'm referring to and I'm looking at right now on my Excel. So meaning uh, one year, the first year is going to be your worst year. And that's when you're bringing in 283, you know, and, and so when you break it all down, so your first year is your worst year with the principal pay down, you're getting $812 in principal pay down. So just $812 is being reduced from your principal of your balance, which is being paid by from your tenant and from the government. So that Mike, amount, let, so let, let me pause you really quick because I want to make sure this is a deep dive, right? I want to make sure I'm extracting the right value for folks yeah. and make sure they're following. Uh, you just went their whole equation, like the rents, HOA and stuff like that. Maybe we can just pause it and just say, hey, for people that are one trying to figure out what to deal the inputs of those numbers are very important. Those assumptions are very important. How did you first find what you can charge for rent? Just so folks that yep. are a little bit more new to the process, how did it figure out how much rent they could charge and how much can or will the government actually pay for that unit? Can we start yep. there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you have uh, fair market rent rates that are published on HUD, uh, HUD site. So HUDhousing.gov. And you go to that and you want to find out your the FMRs they refer to it as. That's fair market rent rates. Um, they have payment standards. Now, payment standards usually reflect a higher number because that's also saying, hey, you're going to cover utilities. And then you have the FMRs that typically they're deducting the utilities out. And, and there's a utility sheet as well. Um, and actually on the on the analyzer, it you can actually see that on uh, within my platform, uh, all uh, all 50 states um, I have in there where you can click on it and then click on the county. And it'll tell you what the FMRs are for every single county in the U.S. So that way it's easy. But the government, unfortunately, is clunky and, and, and kind of scary to go to the site and figure it out. But, yeah, you can go to HUDhousing.gov and you could search for your uh, housing choice voucher FMRs and find those numbers out. So going into back to my deal, right, so that $1,100, I already knew it was going to be $1,100 because I looked up the FMR for that particular location and that helped me better understand what's the 40th percentile that you want to target, because that's what the government targets for those FMRs. It's the mm. 40th percentile of housing in any given area. They're saying, hey, we'll give you a fair market rent rate of the 40th percentile of a house and below. So that means, OK, so most people know the rent to value ratio, the one percent rule. That's going to dictate your target. And that's what we talk about in the training as well. How do you figure out what houses the target? And that's part of the part of the equation as well is, is figuring out those FMRs for sure. And then finding that 40th percentile of housing and below. Got it. So you have yeah. FMR, which is fair market rents. And just for folks to know, like you can look it up, the FMR by zip code, by bedroom count on HUD's website that you guys can go and research out on your own. Now, what's interesting is what a lot of people don't know about is the payment standards that Mike brought up. Payment standards can be a value that's higher than a fair market rents because they include utilities. Mike, how did you decide whether or not you wanted to include utilities as part of the rent? Because you might get a little bit more rent, right? If you follow the payment standards versus following FMR, just curious to your thought process on, and for other landlords out there, should or should yeah. they not include utilities? Because sometimes people worry about people leaving the AC running all the time with the windows open or letting the water run. What are your yeah. thought process there? Yeah, it's a good question and something that every landlord will probably eventually consider. Um, but there is a section too. It's like, should I or should I not include utilities? That is the question um, in, in my training. And I ultimately don't. I don't like including them and there, for a couple of reasons. One, it takes up my time and effort. That means they're in my name. I got to track them. I want to look at them. I want to make sure they're not abusing them. 
And second, it's likely that they do end up becoming, call it just haphazard for rather than saying they're abusing the this, but ultimately they, they'll abuse it. I would imagine they're just not going to remain as um, steadfast on ensuring that they're not wasteful. So they might leave that window open while the heat's blasting in Maine and, you know, it's 30 degrees outside, um, <clears throat> different things like that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I typically don't like to include utilities. And what I find too is the margin of gain is pretty nominal. It's not likely worth your time and effort to include the utilities. Now, <clears throat> there are certain property types, and I actually target them where it's condos, where utilities are pretty low because you're in a stacked, you know, garden style housing, four or five levels up. You're probably the heating isn't that bad. And I do notice that. So it is something that I've considered and I might be wasting about 50 to $100 on that. But also note this, it's not all or nothing. It's not, oh, you are including all utilities or you're not including any. So you can include some utilities. So that's where I talk about it too in the training where I actually leverage the water because in the HOA is the water. So um, I'm paying. And what I mean by that is my one of one of my units is uh, it's one hundred fifty dollars a month or one hundred fifty five dollars a month of which sixty eight dollars of that is is deemed from the utility allowance that the government has given me for water sewer uh, allowance is sixty eight bucks a month. So suddenly what looked like one hundred fifty five dollar HOA do is actually less sixty eight dollars in water. So I get reimbursed for that. So it is something that you want to pay attention to and it, it is worth looking at for sure. But initially, to a new investor, I, I just advise don't you don't really need that. It's a small margin. But if it is an HOA, find out what's included in that HOA. If electric's included in your HOA dues, then yeah, definitely mark that off, and you'll have an opportunity in the the housing uh, application uh, packet that you get as a landlord to mark off what utilities you're covering and what ones are you not. No, that's a great point, Mike. And I think I want to get to the question of how you, you're up to eight properties now. And we just talked about managing utilities and trying to make sure we don't get bogged down in small little details that might just be kind of sort of time killers. How how does your process scale, right? And that's ultimately what investors want to know. It's like, am I just getting like a onesie, twosie here and there? How do I actually take what you are teaching and actually scale it into a more massive portfolio? Yeah. Um, for sure. You can, you can scale it. Um, and just diving back quickly to know why you'd want to scale it back to that example where we're talking about what is your return on the investment between the unrealized and the realized gains on that example of my Excel, we're up to 33% and that's just year one. So the unrealized and the realized return combined is 33%. So that's why the numbers would work leveraging um you know the section eight model or just leveraging any fundamentals in real estate is making sure you understand that aspect of it and how can you scale yeah uh, i mean good question and it's a systematic process that enables me to scale to a point where i'm i'm leveraging certain certain items certain you know i have a forecaster i have an analyzer i have uh you know uh, standard operating procedures that i pretty much know inside now now and if i don't i go back and i can refer to them now that i have it all written down um, but you're eliminating, and this goes back to what we initially talked about on the first episode was uh, single family homes. They just don't scale that well. So, um, and it, there was a funny spot there, right? Where I listed, uh, you know, just a bunch of the things that a single family home has as fences and lawn maintenance and shrubs and porches, exterior uh, lights, electrical crawl spaces. The list is just never ending with septic tanks, driveways, sidewalks, just a bunch of stuff that I talked about, grading issues, et cetera, windows, siding, roofing, that uh, with this model, you're targeting townhomes and condos. So all that's already eliminated. And I, and I talk about that. It's not mitigated. It's eliminated. We don't have any of that stuff to worry about. Uh, and that's just the outside. And then we talk about the inside of the units, too, and why. And this so this is going back to scaling. Being able to scale means you're eliminating how many distractions you have? How many problems can you encounter? And I'm talking about scaling without a property management company too. Now you do have enough margin that you can leverage a property management company that could take care of all that stuff I just listed in a single family house, but that's going to hurt your bottom line. Um, and now we talk about on the inside uh, that a single family has that typically condos and townhomes just don't have garbage disposals, walk-in closets, cathedral ceilings, um, big hallways, 
lots of carpeting, um, chandeliers, just fancy things uh, that you don't need to get the same amount in rent in square footage is the last thing. The average size single family home is 2,100 square feet versus a condo is under 900. Mine and Maine are all under uh, 800 actually. They're 790 square feet. And I keep them high quality, but nice, tight, clean, tidy with LVP flooring, with good countertops, good plumbing, good shower heads, things like that, that you want to make sure are sound and, and high quality, but problem free for the most part. I've mitigated as best I can all the problems that could happen on the inside, because those are the only problems I got to worry about in this model, because all the outside problems don't matter. That's going to be handled by the HOA. And that's how I'm able to scale. So all those variables combined um, with the systematic way and, 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 the, and the SOPs in, in place, you can scale with relative ease, honestly, as long as it goes back to as long as you're comfortable with the numbers. You've got to be comfortable with those numbers and relinquishing. And I'd say going broke once a year, basically. I, I try to do it. I get rid of my my accounts that, I, you know, the savings that I've had from cash flows and, and push it back out there. And we talked about that in compounding real estate and the numbers from above that we were talking about earlier is your cash flow essentially can get to a point where you're buying a unit. And this is where I've gotten to now. If I just put my cash flow into a separate account, which is what I do, every eight months now, every seven months, actually, after I've increased the rents the, the past uh, two months now, I've increased three other properties. Every under seven months, actually, I can buy another unit. What I mean is that's bringing me in almost 50000 to then rel relinquish it back out, redeploy those funds to buy another unit. And that's also where you can scale because a lot of people think we can't scale because we don't have the money. Well, eventually you can, if you buy the first, you get three or four properties, you could start scaling that much quicker too, because however you got your first one to get your first down payment, still do that. But then you have four other streams of income coming in. You're going to get there that much sooner to be able to get your next one. Yeah. And that kind of leads right into my question is maybe expand on that a little bit. You know, do you, most people see real estate investing and, well, I don't have money. That's always the first thing. Well, you know, you can find money. Uh, but what you're saying yeah. is dig dig into that a little bit uh, more deeply. If if they don't need money once they take down their first or second, do they need investors? Do they need debt? Do they or can they simply cash flow other transactions from their their first you know purchase or two? Yeah, Dane, that's right. And I run into that with my friends as well. So um, about money, money being the one of the biggest hurdles. Um, but is it, or is it just an excuse sometimes, right? Because they're also scared. And I understand that, um, people just, they don't know what they don't know. And they've read, they read and read and listen to podcasts, but then they just don't <clears throat> take that initiative and do it. Just try it. You're going to learn a ton. You might fail a little bit, but you know, it's almost like, you know, I have three little kids, you know, it's like if they didn't fall when they were walking, I don't know if they ever would have learned how to walk. You know, like they learn how to crawl and then they're like, oh, I don't really want to walk yet because I keep falling. But it's like they keep falling and then eventually they're going to walk. But, um, you know, it's yeah. anyway, a parenting analogy there. Um, but I would say um, back to what you're asking about, like, do they need investors? I, I don't believe so. Um, and let me hit on the money piece, too. I have four primary principal residents. That means and, and I have two FHA properties. I didn't touch. I didn't refi. Uh, what do I mean? Why, why does that matter? It matters because of the down payment, meaning I only needed three and a half percent down on two of the properties. Those are my two FHAs. And then the other two primary principal residents, I actually only put 5% down on those. So when you look back at that math from above that I was talking about earlier uh, on the Excel, um, it's really the cash on cash is enormous then at that point, because you're only putting in and that's what you're usually looking at. How much initial capital did you put in? Well, guys, listen, if the listeners, if you guys want, you could buy another primary principal residence. And you could do it really well when you're younger. And what's the old adage is buy real estate and wait. Don't wait to buy real estate. So if you could buy sooner and kind of what, thankfully I did it um, six months out of college, I bought my first unit and that was, that was one of my first FHAs. That was three and a half percent down. That only took maybe $6,000. Now I had to upfit the whole place because I was also living in it. So I spent another, I probably, anyway, I spent about 15 total. But ultimately the point is, find out the information you need to know about how much money do you really need. If you could do a primary principal residence, you're looking at way less down. On my $100,000 example, you're only looking at five, you know, maybe $5,000 now. All you need is $5,000 if you could do it as a primary principal residence. It's not a lot. It's not that bad. You can figure out. And that's why I start with personal budget in the training 
figure out, you know, one of the things we talk about is how much money are you eating even? You know, we talk about that. Like you need to look at your finances right down to a granular level and figure out how much money is really going out the door and how much are you wasting? How much do you really need to go out the door and how much do you not need to be going out there and you're just kind of wasting some money? So we hit on personal budget heavy. I love um, that. Yeah. Yeah. But I do want to answer they that don't, If they don't know that, sorry to interrupt, if they don't know that, if they don't know their personal budgeting, that that's the crux of it. They could be spending $500 a month in Starbucks or something, you know, it, it is, is really, really living lean and knowing where, where they can scrimp and save and, or, you know, put money away and, and invest for sure. So I'm a big fan of starting there. Yeah. Yeah. And we dissect it pretty heavy to make sure it hits home pretty good. And we want, you know, and I have a, a template for them to look at, and I actually fill it all in. So like maybe it's something that they don't even, I have birthday parties. Like what's the average spend that I have on birthday parties? I have travel in there. I don't, I hate traveling, but I put a hotel cost and I monthly amortize it too. So it's like, you know, the, the monthly reoccurring cost of like, why do you have $13 a month on, on airfare? Well, cause I only fly once a year and <laughs> I hate flying. Um, but anyway, yeah, all that stuff to a granular level to really understand your numbers in high level of detail with 100% confidence. So that way, you know, where your money's at. And you feel confident when you redeploy it, when you're sending it out there, you you're okay. You're going to be okay, guys. Like, you know, you, yeah. worst case scenario, right. Is God forbid the deal flops and doesn't work out, but guess what? It's, it's still an asset. It's not like you're risking it in stock. It's not stock that can go to zero. Your house, the house isn't going to go to zero. Even if it burns down, you got insurance. So, you know, like you're going to get at least your money back is how I typically look at this. Now you could get into some litigation issues or you could have bought in the wrong spot, but if you follow a model and if you follow the section eight secret model, that will never happen. That really can't happen. But you did ask, Dane, like, do you need investors? You, you can, of course. Like, that is a way, um, you know, that you it's a way to hedge some of the risk for sure. And another way for you to get access to capital that you otherwise just wouldn't have had. So you can. I mean, do I recommend it? Not really. Friends and family. And, you know, you can get a GP and LP, limited partners. And there's all these different scenarios, of course. And it's something that I hear a lot, right, on podcasts and people saying they own like 500, 400, 600,000 doors. And I always am like, do you really? Are you sure you own that? Because if I owned a thousand doors, I wouldn't be on a podcast. I'll tell you that right now. I'm going to be out on a yacht and just loving life. But, you know, but what I say about investors, though, and why I've shied away from them, and of course it does work, and I'm not saying that, is you got a lot of opinions. You have it's a philosophical way that I think you'd have to be aligned to really be sure that your investors and in you and yourself and all the parties involved are going to get along for a long-term process. And I think most of them are going to take three to five years to go whole. And what I mean is then you can sell that property or something like that. But my model is really long-term hold cash flow positive and, and financial freedom with retirement, essentially. Like you just don't need to keep hustling and doing all this stuff because with investors means I look at it. I already have a job. I'm already answering to all my hierarchy of, 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 of higher ranking individuals, the company of which I work for my W2 job is what I'm referring to. I don't really want another W2 job. I don't want emails, text, phone calls that I'm going to be stressed out about when the investors pissed off or something went wrong, or he wants to know why'd you bid on that deal? I see that we got a deal going and I just didn't share all the, the little minutia of things about it. Um, I think the bottom line, the biggest cost and risk that you run is your time. That's a huge asset to me. Time. Time is something you just can't get back. Um, it's insanely valuable. And what I mean is you're spending a lot of time with your investors. You're answering calls. You're, you're talking to them. You're making sure everything's going good. Because likely, if it's you organizing this, you're the, you're the drink stirrer, so to speak. You're the go-to person. And I don't know if I want to do that. And if you have a systematic model, like what I try to adopt and what I've created, I don't think you really need that. And then if we look at the math of it, how many investors do you have? Like maybe if you have two other investors, right? So it's 33% you share, you know, across the board. Well, does that, that kind of means you need three times the amount of units at that point. So then I look at it that way too. It's like, okay, well, I could do 10 units and pretty much be done, you know, work, you know, done really buying and adding more units to my portfolio. <laughs> Not to say that I would stop at 10 because the model, you could probably get to 25 and still be doing it on your own with relative ease. Or you'd have to get 30. But then I look at it and think a little bit more, Dane, on that topic is like, it, what if I get to 30 
And what if the investor had an easy way? Hey, buy this complex. We, we can buy this complex and there's 30 there. Well, suddenly now I have 30 units that I didn't have just a day ago that now I got to outfit. I got to make sure they're all ready to go. I got to inherit tenants. So you just jump the gun really fast from zero to 30. I don't know if that's good either. Um, you know, and then, and then lastly, I just look at it where now if you are at 30 and you thought 30 equal equates to 10 on your own because you're sharing it. Well, what happens now? They want an asset manager. You need a bookkeeper. Right. You might need an in-house real estate attorney. Um, you might need in-house property management, right? It certainly isn't going to be you managing it. Like in my model, you're doing your own. You now you have property management. Um, I'm trying to think. You, you have a CPA. You probably leverage a CPA already, but you probably need a specific real estate uh, CPA accountant on board or bookkeeper. Like I said, suddenly what was like three mouths that you were feeding with the two other partners <coughs> could quickly balloon to seven to ten different mouths. So suddenly what looked like it was 30 units equates to 10 is now 50 units to get the same return on investment per door as my 10 doors. So like right. one guy now needs to stir the drink of all these other people involved, like eight, nine other people. So you got your you got a full time job now and you're reaping yeah. the same benefit that you would have. But that, it's actually not even the same at that point, because now you're going to talk about the unrealized gains that you also have to share versus I, I get all of that. I guess the last piece of this too is leverage. You can't just go and refi at that point. You got to get permission from your investors. Hey guys, I saw a deal. I want to cash out refi on you know just two of my units or whatever, and I'm going to go buy that you know that that two bedroom that I just saw that I love. It's only fifty grand. I'm going to buy it all cash. Well, guess what? You got to make sure that they all buy into that philosophy because they're all timing up the you know the money versus I can do that whenever I want. And this anyway, is so interesting. Well, this is why I wanted both of you on this call because, you know, Mike, you have your perspective. And Dane, you went to 168 units. That's a lot of scaling and that's a lot of sure. effort. And your team has yeah. grown a lot. I don't know, Dane, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, but but I did it kind of the way, you know, Mike's talking about. We, we, right. we did take on investors, but only one or two here or mm -hmm. there. And they were good people that uh, either I had known or my brother and I had both known or he had known. And, you know, uh, sometimes we brought them on and we didn't need them. We, we kind of are their mentors. They were these people that had talked and talked and talked and talked and read and read and read and listened yep. to podcasts for years and just couldn't dive in. And that's that's one case where um, I think maybe a partner is good, where if you're one of those people and you just need some hand-holding. So, so yep. maybe they do partner with you, Mike. Maybe they do partner with us. But no, and that's what I was going to say is, you know, kind of to each their own. I, I had a great conversation last week with a guy that owns over $100 million worth of multifamily properties. And we, you know, Jared and I were, were, were kind of frustrated because we're not growing on the multifamily side now because of the market. And you know, we just talked to him like, gosh, should we start looking at getting into some of these huge deals with 20 other investors and things like that? And yeah. it's to each to each or their own. Um, we yeah. have never done that. And that's not There's... why we're, we're not in it to say, hi, I'm Dane and I have 10,000 doors. I, I, I could care less about. I, I really that doesn't impress me at all for a variety of reasons like you alluded to, Mike. But you know, what I want to do and what we want to do and we're completely content with is uh, changing our children's children's lives, uh, but doing it with good people that we know, because the other thing we need to talk about is then the exit strategy is if you're yep. in a deal with I'm just going to make it up 20 people and you want Leverage. a 1031 or something, guess what? All However right. many people I said were in that deal have to sign off on that. And if one person says, no, I need to cash. That's right. You know, that's that, that dilemma too, but that's how you can scale. I get it. I do. Uh, I've looked into it. What, um, and every Dean, time I'm, I start to get serious about it, I, I really start to think like, well, that's just outside of my sweet spot. Some people I know love um to jump in as a you know an lp on some big deals like that but for me i would rather you know i've, I've added two single family units right now and and 
that's cool. And there's, those are going to double in value within the next couple of years. So I'm just looking for value. I'm looking for good people. Um, I'd be curious, Dane, to better know, like, you know, one, like per door, like, I wonder what your, your true ROI is per door as an investor. Like maybe you're up to 200, 300, 400, 500 doors. Like I'm, like I'm saying, like in these podcasts I listen to, um, you know, and like per door for me, after I pop the rents a little bit more and, you know, I'm all in compliance with FMR and HUD um, is going to be about a thousand dollars per door, you know? Yeah. And I'm, and I'm like, if I had partners though, that would be nowhere near that, especially if yeah. I ended up And what I found, I've talked to a couple uh, people that have a partnership, right. And they have, uh, you know, even a syndication as well that is investing in syndications, which is what it sounds like maybe you're even thinking about doing that is just better understanding how much time, because ultimately for me, it comes down to my time. And like how much effort, time and effort am I putting forth to get a return on that investment? Oh, we dropped him. No, I think, I think uh, Mike just paused really quick, but I think Dane, what I, you, what I think really stood out earlier was our conversation about partnerships. And I think you and I talk about this all the time. It's really about, yeah. are you philosophically aligned with yeah, your partners? Exactly. And I think that's right. such a really, really good point because one of the first things I do with my partners <laughs> when I partner with them was one, what happens when something goes wrong? I've literally seen people where they show me the text messages where they go back and forth with their partners about $20 yeah. to $50 of expenses. And right. this is something that our listeners need to really figure out before you get into a partnership. You should talk about how you're going to break up. And that's really, really important yeah. because all partnerships yeah. end at some point when that someone dies, even you go into end of time. So yeah. Someone's going to pass away. Some It's going to go to the kids and whatnot. So that's something everybody needs to talk through and discuss yeah. into details and just outline, hey, for any expenses over $1,500, I will make those decisions. But anything above that, I, we have to get written approval from everybody. I think these are just very, very simple scenarios. But for everyone to talk through what are the worst case scenarios before forming a partnership, because that is really where the time suck happens. Um Mike, I, th- I think uh, we lost you for a second, but I think we wanted to get to the next question about why do you think this approach of investing in condos and HOA units can get you a greater ROI? Because we just talked about how you got to chop up things when you have different partners. Well, yeah. wh- why do you think your approach gives you a big- bigger return on investment? Um, then going with partners, then going with partners or going with single family homes, as an example, I think we talked a little bit about that last time. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, well, the partnership, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but it becomes all those mouths you have to feed in order to even come close to the same ROI per door. I don't even know how you can match it. That's why I was actually, I think I got uh, my internet maybe went out. I was curious to understand Dane's numbers. You know, I've disclosed mine. I'm just kind of curious, like per door, with all those partners that are likely involved, maybe he has seven or eight. I know it's just his his brother, but I would imagine there's others, you know, like I said, he's probably got an accountant, a bookkeeper, asset manager. The list ends up going on and on as you get to probably just beyond like 25 properties at that point, because you've got three or four different opinions that are going to be pushing you to say, hey, we need a real estate attorney now. You know, we need to look at this. You know, we need these people. We need property management. So yeah, I'd just be curious there. So I don't know. I've not gone that route, but I would imagine to be able to get that return on investment, going at it alone is likely going to be easier and more attainable than to get to $1,000 per door at this price point too. Um, But then furthermore, I mean, back to the question too about single family, comparing it to single family, contrary to what like you will look at on the surface, the HOA fees and eating into your ROI, similar to what we talked about last time, is the HOAs are your friend. They are your scalability way out. That is your your ability to uh, be market agnostic. You don't have to be on site. You don't have to worry about what's going on on the outside like we talked about and pretty much on the inside as well because it reduces all those ancillary items that are on the inside as well quite significantly. So that lets me scale from that angle and give me a better return because I'm not out of pocket spending on all those fixes and all those repairs. And furthermore, though, what I found is typically townhomes and condos, investors don't. And maybe you could say this, maybe, Mike, that's because because you're not going about it intelligently. You're targeting HOAs and condos and townhomes. That's because you're you don't know what you're doing. Maybe that is the case, but it works for me. 
but what I'm about to say is that what I find is there's not as much investor competition. So I'm not running into bidding wars as frequently as I would be and was when I was buying some single family homes. I bought and sold four different single family homes. And each time it was like there was, there was bidding wars and stuff like that. And now the market's a lot different with COVID and with the pandemic now. That's pretty common. But five years ago, four years ago, you okay, I heard right back. And then it was like, hey, how about this number? Okay, and how about some seller concession? Okay, and then we agreed to it. And that was what I was running into with townhomes and condos on a regular basis. It was really easy. There wasn't a lot of investor competition. So that's easier too. And lastly, the price point, what I find the price point for condos and townhomes is less. So I don't have a lot of, you know, I have more capital than I had 10 years ago, but I don't really want to spend four or $500,000 on a single family home, you know, on a regular basis that that that's difficult to keep coming up with that sort of down payment because it's 20 percent down you know i'm going to need 70 80 000 versus i only need 30 40 000 to buy some of these smaller single family units and lastly like we talked about the fair market rents the fair market rents do not care if you're in a a stick built single family uh you know mansion or you're in a high-rise condominium complex that is you know the, the economies of scale so to speak each unit's the same it's cookie cutter as long as you put some high quality uh, product inside that unit, it's all about how many bedrooms. So you don't need a, a 3000 square foot home to give you the top dollar in FMR for a four bedroom. I, I'll target a four bedroom townhome all day long before I want to look at a single family. So that helps me also get a bigger ROI as well. So if my initial capital, if I can reduce how much I'm initially spending mm -hmm. in capital up front, then my ROI is likely going to be better. So that's that I guess that is how I would answer that, Ken. No, I love it, man. Hey, I know we're getting to the end of this, but I want to make sure our guests and audience knows how to learn a little bit more about what you're doing, Mike. So please let us let us our audience know how they can get in touch with you. Where can they learn a little bit more about your program? Right here, guys. Section8secrets.com. It's right here in the bottom left corner of the screen. Those of you that are on the podcast listening to Ken's fantastic affordable housing and real estate investing podcast, it is section8secrets.com. That is the number eight in between the words of section8secrets.com. Head oh, over there, guys. It. it is a community. It is a platform. We share lots of insights and ideas. Um, and when you become a, a subscriber in there, you become part of the community as well. So we bounce ideas off each other. Um, you know, we're happy to entertain pretty much anyone, all levels of investing too. Like I talked about the very junior, the very, you know, very novice people and then expert people, you know, somebody like Dane coming in, he's got three, 400 units. He's welcome to join the platform as well and diversify. And he's already in the affordable housing, but for those other listeners out there, maybe you have 10 units and you wanted to get into housing choice voucher and better understand it. You could just buy, just, uh, you know, subscribe just to better understand the, the platform. You'll get a PDF and the model. And it's a pretty good guide to, to help you in understanding. And of course, you could research this, guys. I'm not trying to say I invented something you know, new. It's out there on the internet, guys. You can go hunt it all down if you want to spend hours and weeks and months searching for it all. Or you could just you know, get it in a nice little concise guide in a business model. Yep. Nice. Thanks, Mike and Dane. As always, my favorite guest co-host, I appreciate you for coming on. Hey, thank you so much, Mike. Hopefully we'll have you back on again to uh, continue sharing expertise, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank Thanks you, everybody. Again, Thanks, Dane. Thanks, guys.